Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, I'm Mario Sakura. I'm here with the two TJs and with a special guest, our good friend Nian Vuong, who uh, is going to be with us. And we're going to talk about the 1993 Peter Weir film, Fearless, starring Jeff Bridges, Rosie Perez, and Isabella Rossellini. So, Nian, it's great to have have you with us. Uh, Nian, before we get started, do us do us a favor. Take a take a moment and tell our listener who you are. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm founder of Evolving Enneagram. Uh, what we do is transform human ecosystems using this like compassionate, uh, contemplative approach to the Enneagram. Uh, so I both teach classes and do one-on-one coaching, etc. On it. Another thing about myself I want to say before we get started is. I think if you think about like different literacies, like my Enneagram literacy is pretty high, but my movie literacy is fairly low. So I'll just start with that. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> that's, that's all right. That's all right. We'll geek out on the movie references, but awesome. don't worry about it. That's okay. I'm exactly the opposite in the end. So together we'll average one normal person. <laughs> I'll increase my movie literacy through hanging out with you guys is my hope here. So There you are. Yeah. yeah. Take notes because the references will fly. All right. So, um, Nian, it's great to have you. So, uh, Nian is a, a good friend who uh, has been, um, uh, we've been interacting for a while uh, through uh, social media. I guess my first exposure to you, Nian, was when you were uh, uh, on a panel, uh, an IEA sponsored panel, and I was impressed with what you had to say and reached out to you. And we've been having a bit of a dialogue uh, ever since, so we're real thrilled to to have you here. I think you'll make a good contribution, despite your um, despite my spiritual your, background. No, 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 no. It was That's the Enneagram and spirituality, by the way. Uh, <laughs> well, there, there you the go. IEA. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, look, this is why we, you know, we picked you for this film, right? Because I think it's pretty easy to say there are a lot of spiritual themes in this movie. So uh, what I was going to say is despite your lack of uh, broad encyclopedic film knowledge oh, like T.J. Dahl and T.J. Ingracia have here. So um, so with that, uh, I'm going to jump in and talk about this movie. So Fearless as I said, was directed by Peter Weir. Let me ask you guys, uh, you guys Peter Weir fans? I haven't seen a massive number of his movies. I mean, Gallipoli and Dead Poets Society. But I can't think of too many others. Witness, The Truman Show, uh, Master and Commander. Okay, then yes, I'm a fan. I'm a fan without realizing it. Never really looked him up specifically. All right, good, good. TJ and Gracia, how about you? Yeah, the same. I actually I haven't seen Master and Commander, which I think we've talked about Ooh. possibly discussing Ooh. on this podcast at some point. Well, watch that before you go on a boat ride, because I know you watch this before you're about to get on an airplane. So, so watch Master and Commander before you get on a ship next time. All right, great. I will will do. I'll keep a theme going. Uh, yeah, I love Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Truman Show's great, although I haven't seen that one in a long time. Uh, yeah, like TJ said, I didn't realize I was a big fan, but I'm a big fan. 
Yeah. So I'm a huge Peter Weir fan, uh, going all the way back to Year of Living Dangerously with Mel Gibson and uh, Linda Hunt, um, you know, one of my early favorite movies. And it's the movie that kind of made Mel Gibson a star um, right around the time he was doing, uh, I don't know if it was before or after Road Warrior. It would have been uh, right around the same time. Uh, Witness, great movie. Uh, Mosquito Coast, not so great. So uh, let me talk a little bit about the movie. Kind of a hard movie to summarize, uh, I guess. So I'm going to give the kind of the outline of it. Um, so Fearless opens with Max Klein, played by Jeff Bridges, a San Francisco architect emerging unharmed from a horrific plane crash in the cornfields outside Bakersfield, California, holding the hand of a young boy and a baby cradled in the other arm. Despite the chaos and tragedy all around him, Max is oddly composed. He hands over the boy to rescuers and finds the mother of the baby. Then he grabs a taxi and goes to the nearest hotel. He rents a car and starts driving home. On the, way he st- on the way, he stops to see a former girlfriend and in a diner, deliberately eats a strawberry despite having a life-threatening allergy to the fruit. Rather than going directly home or even calling his family, Max checks into another hotel where he is discovered by the FBI. The airline arranges a train ride for Max to get home, but he wants to fly and requests a first-class ticket. On the plane, he is joined by Dr. Perlman, uh, played by John Turturro, a psychologist working for the airline who specializes in PTSD. Once home, Max quickly grows frustrated with Perlman and the attorney Stephen Brillstein, who has been hired by the widow of his business partner, Jeff, who was killed in the same crash. Max is dramatically different, being unusually direct to his family and others. He starts to think that he cannot be killed and has let go of all his fears of death. The next morning, Max is leaving his home. He encounters a young boy who, the young boy who he comforted as the plane crashed and an army of reporters who start referring to him in the media as the Good Samaritan. The boy, Byron, credits Max with saving his life and says he only feels safe with Max. Max's relationship with his own son and his wife become increasingly tense. Three months after the crash, Dr. Perlman asks Max to meet with Carla, a survivor on the flight, who lost her two-year-old son who was wrenched from her arms on impact and died. Max and Carla develop a strangely intimate platonic relationship, and Max announces to his wife, I have a feeling of overwhelming love for her. I've never felt anything like it. Eventually, Carla breaks down and Max learns that she holds herself accountable for her son's death. To relieve her guilt, Max straps her into the back seat of his Volvo and instructs her to hold a toolbox the same way she held her son Bubbles and he drives the car at high speed into a wall. The toolbox goes flying and Carla realizes she is not to blame. While Max is hospitalized, Carla tells him that she has returned to life and that they need to end their relationship, but much to his disappointment, as he is not ready to go back to his former existence. Meanwhile, Laura discovers that rather than working as she thought he was doing, Max has been doing a series of sketches related to the crash that progress from chaos and terror to spiritual equanimity, culminating with a photo of Bosch's ascent into the Empyrean. When Max finally leaves the hospital, his wife takes him home. He tells her, I want you to save me. Brillstein shows up to announce that the insurance company will settle the suit the next day, and among the treats he brings to celebrate are strawberries. Max eats one and has an allergic reaction, 
and as Laura is trying to revive him, he relives the crash and is tempted to go toward the light, but her voice brings him back. He wakes in a state of crying, laughing, and as he and Laura embrace, he says, I'm alive. So, general reactions to the movie, folks. Um, Who wants to start? I'll jump in. I have been a lifelong Jeff Bridges fan. I saw Tron when I was a little kid and absolutely loved it. And that movie continues to be a guilty pleasure to this day. And there was just something about Jeff Bridges in that movie that seemed so cool that just I was on his side from then on and still am. So when this movie came out, I was in college, saw the uh, trailer, was super intrigued. And then when I saw the movie, I didn't really love it. Haven't seen it since, haven't thought about it since. Watching it this time, it hit me in the heart and had me in tears both times I was watching it in preparation for this recording. I think it's amazing. I think it's also interesting. I don't know that I can actually name another movie where this is the case, off the top of my head, where there's a main character you can't really relate to. You're seeing the world through his eyes, but you're not. He's mysterious to the viewer, just as he's mysterious to the people in his family and the other people in the movie. So I'm eager to tease apart the significance of that as well as other things. It's interesting, TJ, that you mentioned that last piece about having a protagonist, essentially a main character that you couldn't relate to. That's what I actually struggled with this film um, because I generally struggle with films if like I can't find like one person that I like really like. And in in his case, uh, the lack of relatability has to do with something that I realized, oh, my God, like, you know, we, we talked about like Enneagram nines where there's something if I can't, if there's a lack of directness in someone, like, like I can't connect with them in a way where I can't then relate to their story. So, so it's just interesting that you mentioned that. So I, I struggled in that, but the themes were really fascinating, but there's something about like the distance in, in the main character's being that was really hard for me to connect with and then so stay with like like do I care about him and, and do I and I have to admit also I might have some judgments around people who check out as well <laughs> that, that got really triggered you know in watching this film so that was my first reaction and yes also kind of seeing the it was just such a, an original like an interesting film that 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 held my interest like what is this journey about right so so that held my interest but I was really struggling to connect with the character yeah yeah, I agree with all that. Um, I'm still processing what, what this movie means and and what it's all about. More than anything else we've talked about, I really struggled just even with Enneagrammatic themes in general. I think because so much of what we're seeing in this film is people dealing with extreme trauma. Surviving a plane crash is about as intense as it's going to get. And so seeing somebody who's under such duress, basically, and processing all that, I think, can obscure, uh, it can make it hard to get a, a solid bead on Enneagram themes and that kind of stuff. So I've sort of been struggling with that, uh, you know, similar to what you guys have talked about. So I'm interested to have you guys tell me all the answers. <laughs> or join in your struggle. <laughs> so. So, uh, so, so, so let me share my th- reaction to the movie in general. So it's interesting, TJ Dahl, when you talked about watching the movie and uh, being a little bit uh, underwhelmed by it when you first saw it. I remember seeing the movie in the theater very specifically and – Uh, Being a conscious Peter Weir fan at the time was really looking forward to this movie, right? And uh, so I watched it, and my initial reaction, in some ways I still have, 
is this is not a movie that has a logic to it. It is a an experience, right? It is not something you, you know, it it's not a um, a, a typical plot driven or action driven film. It is an emotion driven film in many ways even though the character is detached like you were saying Dan there were these also these moments of real connection that he was experiencing right the way he was connecting to some people in some situations was amazing right and at the same time he was drawing more distant from the people in his life right uh, in his prior life so uh, i loved this movie um it's a hard movie to watch there are some movies that are tough to rewatch, right i think of uh, million dollar baby for example right uh, you know rewatch great great movie Rewatching it is really tough. Uh, United 93, another plane crash movie, right, uh, is another one. Amazing movie, but I've only seen it once because I just can't bring myself to experience that again, right? Um, with this one, the reason I wanted to talk about this movie on this podcast is because I think this movie is all about the inner triangle of the Enneagram. I think it's all about what does it really mean to change and what are some of the ways in which we can change. I remember uh, one time talking to a psychologist who said to me, people change in two ways, through acute emotional trauma and through hard work over time. And sometimes there's a little bit of both. Right. Um, another way to think about this is that people can change through what is called state work. Right. You have a an emotional experience, or a, maybe a drug induced experience, or something that has this change effect on you. But what I find is that people usually kind of go two steps forward, one step back in those sort of situations if it's not combined with some sort of stage work, meaning doing the hard work of change. Okay, incremental behavioral change. And I think one of the big themes of this movie was uh, what can real lasting change be when it's based on trauma, right, in this sort of way? And how do we ensure, how do, how do we, when we're impacted by something significant, right, how do we manage that change and how can we integrate that change into our lives in some real way? Okay, so reactions to that first of all is that making any sense as i said i just said a lot of words yeah absolutely and it's really interesting to see this main character as an avatar of that because on the one hand he changes into almost a jesus figure there's a fair bit of jesus symbolism sometimes quite blatantly in the movie yes and at the same time he's also reactive and he slaps his you know the the john Turturro character he suddenly will yell, you know, he'll, he'll throw fits all of a sudden, he'll do erratic things. So it's like, okay, so it's not like this turned you into an enlightened master. Did it take you up the levels? Did it take you down? Did it take you simultaneously up and down? It is really interesting to look at. I would suggest that this is similar to what people talk, what people mean when they talk about a spiritual bypass, right? Where they have this sort of spiritual experience, but bypass the hard work of becoming a better, more virtuous person. Yeah, I would say I'm glad you brought up that uh, notion of 
of spiritual bypass because I think that's probably what triggered me around it, you know, especially working within the realms of spirituality. I see that often this this way of checking out that that has the semblance of like holier than thou right like even some of the ways of showing up the actions but there's something like like uh, to me like spirituality includes a fully embodied humanity and there's something in this where like he was so disconnected from his mortality for for so much of this right that it didn't feel like the giving came from that real place it's a different place to be like i'm risking my life by running into this wall and i will do it anyway versus you know i'm invincible and so let's run into this wall to, to teach you a little lesson and bring you and, and, and bring forth this very noble like like purpose right and so so yeah there was something about that but yet yet even within that what's really interesting is normally you would think that spirituality right going toward the light is being saved and even as you stated in your summary mario there's it was actually in a way his last statement to his wife like save me it's like bring me back home to my humanity is what it felt like you know it's like that woo woo you know it's like it's bring me back home here and so he is saved by coming fully back into his body but yet as you mentioned with this with felt experiences of a different way of being that he could then bring forth into his life so that's yeah so that's really interesting but that was my that was my big struggle with it of like oh how many people have i seen like in that place where yeah. they're like oh you know well we could do this it was like well but there it's very different it's like what's courage to me it's actually it's not being fearless right in right. which is the title of the movie it's actually having fear in a very like mortal way and yet overcoming that fear i watched this movie last night with my wife for the second time and she's a uh, a psychotherapist by trade. And after the scene where he crashes the car to teach her the lesson, she said, well, that's actually a pretty good uh, therapeutic technique right there because it worked. Nobody died. There is this tie between he seems to have woken up to some like it's like he's he survived the crash and woke up in this alternate dimension or something where he has access to these newer insights he does he doesn't want to live like a coward anymore. He doesn't want to be ruled by fear anymore. But I think there's a big tie in humanity in general between genius and madness. Like if you want the genius component, there's going to be some madness that goes along with it. And crashing your car into a wall to teach this woman a lesson isn't it's effective because nobody died, but if she had died, it's like, well, that's that's not a very good way to live. Or, you know, because he has a, a near panic attack in the lawyer's office, he runs up on the roof, and the only way he can calm himself down is to step up on the ledge and with his overcoat covering his face, twirl around on the edge inches from death, you know, eventually that kind of behavior is going to catch up with him. So it's like he somehow, it's like he's transcended in some ways, but also lost touch with his humanity, as you said, Nian, in some ways. And these are questions. These are questions that are at the heart of spiritual work, right? It's how much of it involves uncovering something, you know, original to us or deeper to us, and how much of it involves becoming. Right? And um, so, I want to, you know, steer in a, in a moment, steer the conversation toward the inner triangle, the enneagram, particularly related to the core qualities 
uh, at each of those three points. Okay, um, others will refer to what I mean by the core qualities as essential aspects. And uh, honestly, this movie uh, exemplifies why I don't use that term. Uh, for for one of the reasons, uh, I also want to do a, a quick callback to T.J. Dahl's point about uh, uh, Christian imagery in this movie. I mean, I think it was pretty clear. Uh, T.J. and Grassi already mentioned the scene where he's up on the rooftop, and there's that one scene where he's standing with his arms spread out, right? Uh, also, after the crash, when he goes into the hotel and he takes a shower and he's looking at himself in the mirror. Where is his one visible scar? Well, right where Jesus got the spear stuck, right? So there's this element of rebirth and resurrection uh, certainly permeating this movie. Okay, So a lot of Christian themes. Uh, any any I missed, uh, any obvious uh, Christian references here? There's there's a couple that I found really subtle that I didn't notice until I watched the second time. Seen early in the movie when he's just sitting with his back leaned against his car. First of all, sitting in the desert is something that Jesus did. Mm. For 40 days, I mean, we don't know how long right, right. Max Klein is in the desert. But then he also gives this just this little spit into the into the sand and mixes it around with his fingers, which is something in the Gospels that Jesus did to cure a blind man. And he just ah. holds that in his fingers. Uh, on the door of Carla's bedroom is a sticker that says, Jesus is mi mejor amigo. Jesus is my best friend. And later she refers to her friendship with Max as if God had sent her, her own personal angel. And then there's a scene in the uh, encounter group at the hotel where one of the survivors talks about seeing Max and how he said, follow me, follow me into the light. I seem to remember somebody in the gospel saying that to somebody else at some point, you know, and then there's also Jeff Bridges didn't have a beard. That might've been a little, a little too obvious, Hmm. but he did have long (laughs) hair in that kind of handsome leading man way that was pretty normal in 1993. It wasn't quite a mullet, but it's like, it's not a million miles away from being Jesus symbolism. But different from the long hair he had in The Big Lebowski. (laughs) Yes, very different. (laughs) Uh, Okay, uh, so before we get into the uh, core qualities in the inner triangle, um, any good Enneagram-related portrayals that stood out for you guys, for any of you? I'm very much in the same boat as TJ and Gracia on this. As I was watching it, I'm trying to do my detective work of like, what type is Carla? What type is Laura, the Isabella Rossellini character? And couldn't really get that much of a beat on it. You know, Carla just seemed so racked with grief that that's her type. And we don't meet her at all before the tragedy. So she not only survived a plane crash, her two year, almost two-year-old child died not quite in her arms, and she blamed herself. So she's at a very low level of health because she sustains so much trauma and guilt and blames herself. So I was completely unable to discern, like, what type could I name her as? I mean, I could give a couple of guesses, but I really couldn't back them up with, with much evidence. Uh, with Laura, the wife, my guess was a six, but only maybe. You know, she was, when stressed, willing to argue and argue hard and long and including whether this is in private or at a friend's Thanksgiving dinner. Also, she, when, the, when the John Turturro character, the counselor, comes to her ballet class, she's a ballet teacher, she puts him on the spot and brings him into the dance, kind of co-ops him deliberately to make him uncomfortable. And I thought that could be a six-ish way of like challenging authority, of like, oh, you, th- you come here and you think you can scare me, huh? All right, let's put you on the spot. How, how do you like that? And then when Max is checked out and he's up in his office and she's listening to music and she's 
trying to talk to him, but he's not responding. And eventually he asks her to turn the music down. She turns it up and then she turns it up again in defiance. So, but maybe some sixish things there, but the only character, I mean, we've already talked about Max being a nine. That was the only one that seemed a pretty clean Enneagram portrayal to me. I didn't think any of them were clean. I have to admit, uh, Mario, when you sent the movie over to me, of course, you know, the bias of like you had planted the seed that Jeff Bridges plays a lot of nines. So I was trying to shake that for <laughs> as I was watching. I was like, okay, but don't, but don't assume and look and look. And, and there were moments where it really felt unclear because of exactly the, the issue of trauma and the issue of trauma going, oh, the, one of the reasons I questioned the nine is like in the plane, in the scene where he's talking to his business partner, and the partner turns and says something essentially like, oh, well, you're always like anxious or paranoid or something. I've never heard people say that of nines. Like, like, you know, like if that's his default, you know, so does he drop into nineness? Like, is that like the, the thing that he jumped into, right? If that's the default, like you don't hear it anywhere in the story that like for the most part, he wasn't present in his life beforehand. So that's that's where I struggled with with the nineness, even though the character's energy throughout the film had that detached energy of nineness. Yeah. So I, I think the uh, probably the only real clear uh, Enneagram characterization was the businessman who wanted to get back to work in the uh, yes. the group therapy session, That's the right? One I was uh, get. So, so, uh, so probably a pretty clear three. Uh, thoughts on the John Turturro character of Doctor Perlman? The scene when he first gets on the plane and he's talking to Max. The plane is pulling back from the gate, and he says, oh, the plane's pulling back now. You should put your seatbelt on. There was like a banging noise at some point. says, oh, that's normal. It felt like you would think that he was saying those things to comfort Max because Max was literally just in a plane crash. But it felt almost more like he was saying those things to comfort himself, like he's maybe afraid of flying or something. That scene felt maybe a little six-ish. You know, he's a little... um, neurotic in that scene, but I I had a hard time getting a beat on him through the rest of the film. It's interesting because this movie was so much about traumatic circumstances, it's hard to pick out uh, the Enneagram type. So anything we say is, you know, subjective and speculative, right? I mean, this is one of those movies where, um, honestly, the Enneagram types are almost besides the point um, in comparison to the Enneagram themes that that it focuses on, particularly around the inner triangle. Uh, I will say with the Jeff Bridges character, because there was that comment about, oh, you're such a worrier on the plane. And it was a lot about overcoming fear. Um, uh, However, the thing I have experienced in working with um, lots of nines over the years um, is how much, once you scratch the surface, Issues related to point six and point three are right there, right? In fact, and the same thing occurs with threes and sixes. Uh, that inner triangle, I mean, almost every person I've ever worked with of those three types, at some point you get to a foundational set of issues. Number one, I don't feel like I'm good enough. Number two, I don't feel like I have value. Number three, I don't feel like I have what it takes to survive. Okay. So fear, um, truthfulness, 
love, or the capacity for love and to be lovable are really at the heart of all three of those types. Okay, So if I was to put a type on the Jeff Bridges character of Max, I would say kind of nine just because his temperament and affect were just so nine-ish. And I have this Jeff Bridges is always a nine, you know, kind of bias, right? I've never seen him play anything other than a nine uh, that I can think of. So I'd say probably a nine, but that's almost besides the point. Okay. So, um, uh, TJ Dahl, do you have anything you would comment there before I go on to the next point I want to make? Yeah, because I, th- I thought of those same things too. Like, if it could be a six in that as the plane is crashing, he has this transition from total anxiety to zen calm, which is something many sixes describe when they're in, in a 911 situation if you push them to it. Most sixes won't think of themselves like, yes, I'm great in a crisis. You want to call on me? They'll say the exact opposite. But if you really get them to think about it, they're like, well, I guess there was this one time, and then they'll tell a story of the time that they showed up brilliantly, and all of their doubt and anxiety vanished in the moment, and they just went with their inner knowing and did the exact right thing. But then after the fact, the doubt returned, including the doubt about, should I have done that thing, even though in the moment it was right, and everybody would acknowledge that it was not only right, it was exactly what was needed. So the fact that he didn't revert to any kind of sixish anxiety revisiting what had happened, but that he stayed in this kind of nine-ish place led me to believe he's more of a nine who just has a fear of flying, quite honestly. Yeah, exactly. Which many people do. People of all types might be afraid of flying for any number of reasons. And then those bursts of erratic behavior throughout the bulk of the film, I saw as very much sixish anxiety and reactivity slipping in. And stressed out nines can sometimes show that, you know, all of this repressed fear, like Mario, as you said, it's, it's in there. That's not what they lead with. You have to know a nine pretty well to know that they have that because they just seem like they're these calm, happy, pleasant people, but it's in there. And when they're stressed, sometimes it sneaks out and it sneaks out all of a sudden so that when he slaps the, um, John Turturro character, he doesn't see it coming. We don't see it coming. He Jeff Bridges' character himself probably didn't see it coming. It just happened. He didn't hit him that hard, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> or when he's driving with the lawyer and he just suddenly screams for no reason and scares the hell out of him and then stops and says, you're, trying to t- you're coaching me how to lie and I don't want to do that. But like very impulsive all of a sudden. And that's why it's so jarring because nobody expects it from him, including himself. So that's, that's the way I saw like the six, nine thing happening with him. I also wondered about, I mean, I don't know the lingo because it's more like related to movies, but it's not exactly the term episodic, but is it possible that a movie that is created less to be plot driven, less likely to have characters that are, you know, robust in that, in that sense, right? Where, where they really do fit a character because we're, we're almost just getting pictures of humanity, like a kaleidoscope, you know, and in that, that's what makes it sort of so hard to place and and, and like maybe it's not meant to be real characters like there are some shows that are deliberately like that right so i just wonder about that Uh, so so that's interesting dan i would suggest um that you're absolutely right but that points to it being a high quality film that's actually capturing human nature in reality Right, because humans are complex, right? I mean, in in movies, it's easy to spot the stereotypical 
uh, Enneagram portrayals, right? And when you read a lot of literature about the Enneagram, it tends to be pretty stereotypical, right? Based on these, you know, characteristics. But as you get to know the Enneagram, you start to realize, wait a minute, people are a lot more complex. And we do see these patterns in people. But when we look at the whole of them, we start to see these other things happening that don't fit the simple narratives of what a three is like or a one is like or a four, right? So I think I, I agree with the point you're making, okay? I think it actually points to that this is such a great depiction of humanity that it's hard to tell the type, right? Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say, well, possibly then a great depiction of transformation or transcendence, if, if, if that makes sense, right? Because fixated humanity is, d- does tend to drop into that stereotype more. But when we're talking about transformation or something that lifts beyond into another aspect of our human potential, then, then we open up into the entire Enneagram. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. So let's take this then a, a step further. And usually when we're talking about the Enneagram, from my perspective, we're talking about these nine strategies, right? So if we say three, six, nine, striving to be peaceful, striving to be outstanding, striving to be secure. But there's this deeper dimension that's happening, right? And this deeper dimension we call core qualities, which are aspects of each one of us that, based on our Enneagram type, we just happen to have a little bit more of an issue with or a sensitivity toward, right? So I, as an eight, have a bit more sensitivity to the core quality of point eight of vitality. And TJ Daw as a four has more sensitivity to this idea of uh, individuality and so forth, okay? So for me, the big themes of this movie are what does it, what is mature love? What is a real sense of value? a mature sense of value, and what is real confidence or will, okay? And those, again, correlate to points 9, 3, and 6 on the Enneagram. And I think those were the key themes of this movie, right? What does it mean to love, okay? What does it mean to have value? I mean, they were talking, you know, one of the sub-themes of the movie was what is a life worth, right? And how do you get more money out of the insurance company based on the trauma or the, the, you know, the, the, the nature of the, of the death? And how do we get over our fears, right? How do we develop this confidence in our, you know, that we can survive? Thoughts on those themes, guys? For me, um, uh, listening to you share, I, you know, I, so we start with like love, all right, like um, benevolence, goodness at, at point nine. And it does sound like there's a journey through that when, um, okay, there's an experience of 
complete like self-giving in his hero heroic acts of of saving others um there's the moving into the notion of i love this one woman a virtual stranger like like i feel a love bigger than what i felt like my entire life before now and there's the um i would even say almost like the self love in the end that i felt that that where his desire to be saved is a desire to come to kind of come home in a different way to himself into the world um and so for me there was this interesting journey that you could maybe parallel around like first this very self-centered egoic love that moves into it almost a self-abandoning love right you know to to love as an experience of oneness and then love as an experience of self-differentiation in the highest point of the nine. Like, like I can, I can kind of see that journey as one piece of it. Um, looking at fear, it's very similar in that, okay, what are the things that I'm worried about? And then him in the beginning, literally that statement that he repeats at the end, which is like, I'm about to die, you know, kind of like, and it's, it's like the facing of his mortality in a way that then buttresses him for life, right? First in a, in a, a, a grandiose way, in the same way the love was a grandiose love, like all encompassing, you know, um, like, so there was this way in which it was like far-fetched, um, but it was a way to sort of face something, like to face our death is to, is to finally, if we overcome that, that fear, if we move through that, come back home into, oh, like I'm going to be more alive now because I have faced my death. And I think that that's where he comes full circle to where it's very different from the spiritual bypass of, oh, I can eat strawberries because I'm invincible versus, oh, actually I ate a strawberry and I survived, but the strawberry almost killed me. You know, like that's a different sort of facing of, of like that fear. And then I, maybe thinking out loud around um, value you know, uh, I th I think you pointing out, I think it's a great uh, insight to point out that like the whole thing legally is about like, it's almost like a legal valuing of our lives and how do we place a value on a person's life? And um, I think sort of the, the questions, it's almost like when he encounters the question with the lawyer, uh, there's something about uh, like his disdain for like, well, number one, putting financial value on it. Like there was like a distaste for that. But I think there's also a confusion around what it means. I mean, just like it's the entertaining of that question around what it means that I think he's exploring. And then I think even his comment, I, I don't know if you guys remember that scene where at first he's like resisting you know, saying something to help, right? And then he's like, okay, I'll say it. You know, kind of like, it's almost like this resignation to like, like, is that a way of saying, I'm going to honor its value? You know, like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what the money, like, but I'll honor that value. So, so yeah. So I'm just kind of thinking out loud again about those, those three th themes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. TJ Dahl, thoughts on that? Yeah. I don't have much to add on the theme of love. There is a conversation between him and his wife when they're arguing where she says, I love you. We've lived together for 16 years. They've been great. And he says, uh, not always. And she says, yes, always. They've always been great for me. Even when I hate you, I know I love you. And I was particularly impressed with that line. I thought that there's a very sophisticated take on what love is, what long-term love is. That when it's real, 
it's powerful even in those moments of anger, even in arguments, even in bad periods. And she doesn't go into that, but like, is there a, how long does the fight last? How long does a dispute between a couple last? A, a, a day, a month, a year? And even then there's a sustaining love beneath it. Uh, a moment that I found incredibly powerful, particularly the second time I watched it, was right near the end when he's come home from the hospital and he's just starting to realize that it's maybe time to re-engage with his family. He sees his son's scrapbook of all the newspaper clippings about himself. And we don't hear the voiceover. We don't see him or hear him say this to his wife or to anybody else, but we can see the wheels turning in terms of there is so much love between me and my son, and I've been neglecting him quite blatantly. And this isn't a love that I want to lose. And then there's also his relationship with Carla in that when he drives that car into the brick wall, again, we don't know what's happening inside his head. The first time I saw it, I didn't know that was coming. I didn't know he was going to do that, just like she didn't know. We're meant not to know. One of the things we don't know is whether he's certain he's going to survive it. He's probably in that place of fearlessness where at one point earlier, he, you know, after walking through traffic, he calls out to God, apparently, you want to kill me, but you can't. So maybe he thinks that I'm invincible. Or maybe he also thinks that if I die, okay, because this is worth it. And there's a line in the gospel where it says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that seemed a really interesting encapsulation of that in that, well, for one thing, he was right. Carla was punishing herself to the point that in that point in the movie, she is so grief stricken. All she can do is repeat the Hail Mary prayer again and again and again. When he moves her into the backseat, it's almost like he's moving a toddler. Like she's barely even cognizant. She's gone down to that place where basically nothing can reach her except something this extreme and it works. And he lay everything on the line for her. And then he gets injured far more than she does. She recovers quite quickly. He's in the hospital for quite a while. He was right in doing this. It's an extreme thing. It's not something that I would advocate anybody do. It's not something that I think the movie is trying to tell us that if you really love someone, this is what you'll do for them. But it's yet another exploration of that theme of what does it mean to love another person? Especially because in the previous scene, he'd taken her to a shopping mall at Christmas and he'd come up with the idea that let's buy presents for for your dead son and for my dead father. And then he goes and buys all these sweet treats like these chocolate covered apples and the basket of strawberries and all these. And then they dance to Four Elise as there's a grand piano and a pianist right there in the mall. And they spin in circles and circles. It's like all these things that I can do to reach you, to help you feel life again, to help you feel love again. So yeah, the movie was in many ways a meditation on that. And Nian, to build on a point that you brought up earlier, one of the things I do is I teach a course on how to create a one-person show. And the lesson, the Lesson one that I always start with is there are five kinds of one-person shows, and this applies to more than just one-person shows. The by far the most common is a poem. Uh, pardon me, a, a story. It's a narrative, something that happens. Less common is a poem, and I think by your definition, this movie is a poem. Nobody speaks in poetic language, but it isn't a linear narrative. It is a linear narrative, although there's a number of flashbacks. It is about something that happens to a person, but it is more a meditation on or an exploration of a theme or any number of themes, sort of like the films of Terrence Malick or uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, where that's the majority of Hollywood films are not that. Hollywood films are almost always stories and they succeed or fail in as much as they can get the audience invested in the suspense of what's going to happen and the resolution and of the climax and all of that. So this movie wasn't a massive box office hit, 
It was a failure, in fact. It was, it, they lost a lot of money. But it is a really interesting experience to watch and just let yourself explore this almost like you're an undersea creature swimming in this ocean of all the many different flavors of love and of value and of confidence. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Terrence Malick because I think that is the closest analog to this movie, right? Because you're absolutely right. It is not... It is not a movie you watch for the story. It's a movie you watch for the experience. And if you're expecting a clear, simple narrative, if you're expecting conventional, then by all means, it's not going to happen, right? And uh, Weir was good at that. I mean, Weir was good at, you know, not giving you what you wanted as an audience member, but instead making you feel um, instead. Um, so, so, so those are excellent points. We haven't talked uh, enough about Carla. I think uh, Rosie Perez's performance in this was spectacular. I mean, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, I believe, didn't win, was fantastic. Her portrayal of grief was amazing. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to go through this uh, acting in this movie the way that she had to for a relatively inexperienced actor at the time. I don't know, tell me about the transformation of Carla after the crash. Did it feel believable to you guys? It did to me. She needed a big push. And this is something that I've both been on the receiving end of and known of other therapists to recommend is after a while, talk therapy can only take you so far. And sometimes when someone has a big experience, that can be the thing that breaks the story that a person is stuck in a cul-de-sac of. I've had a number of things like this and I'm happy to share about it, even though they're not 100% legal, because I've talked about this on stage, but I have participated <laughs> in a number of ceremonies involving entheogens, ayahuasca being one of them, where in, these, in some of these retreats, there's a lot of communal sharing before and after. So you get to understand where someone's coming from and how a perennial issue like an eating disorder or suicidal ideation or any number of things can just haunt a person so badly that there just seems to be no escape. And then this powerful, overwhelming experience can give them a perspective that they never would have considered and that they feel it in their cells. And that even if it can't be proven, you know, it can't be rationally justified, that part doesn't matter because there's some part of me that's suddenly so overwhelmingly grateful for every moment of my life, including the trauma, that that now informs who I am. And then, of course, Mario, as you were saying before, if you don't do something to integrate that, it's just going to fade. You're going to be you're going to be living on this cloud for a little while, and then probably be subject to spiritual bypass. But then, if you re-engage in the protracted and difficult, and quite often slow work of integration, then that peak experience can inform your life and level you up just as a person and make you more loving and more compassionate, and most importantly, and this is particularly relevant to this story, more engaged. More engaged in life, not removed from life, and not dismissing life as this. none of this is actually real, but more like this is real, even though it's one small part of a much bigger whole, and it's not to be devalued because it's one small part, it's to be embraced because it's one small part. And all of these little elements of my life, whether they were my relationship with my wife or my kids or my work or the city around me or doing good works or just taking out the garbage, all of those things can be done with that much more joy and engagement and love. 
Yeah, well, this harkens back to something you, uh, one of the themes you opened us with, Mario, which is to me the difference almost between stages and states. And that, like, this notion that uh, this visceral experience um, would, like, enabled her to enter, experience a state of being that helped her to move into a different stage sort of of her growth, if you will, like like that notion. Um, so to, to the extent that we believe that, like even traumatic events, right? Like like describing this accident as, a, as something beyond, I mean, it felt like she was spitting in her head in guilt. And so in her body, her body released that guilt for her in that moment, right? And so that kind of freed up like to be in a different stage of life. And you know, whether or not, I think we're kind of beyond the, you know, since like, can we type these people or not, you know, kind of, and to the extent that like, we can't, maybe there's something just more symbolic in that journey around states and stages. But but I have to say that there were moments where I'm like, shit, you know, we've been talking about sixes a lot. I actually had this like, well, okay, she's not an A because she did, she didn't think she was strong enough. She She appealed to authority, the stewardess to help her. And then she was upset that the authority didn't give her the right instructions, you know, and then she's in fear and then she's in fear for her life in the car and needing the support of like his authority, if you will, kind of, you know, and, and so I could see that as a spiraling thing. And even like some of the issues that sixes have around uh, projecting power outside of themselves and then splitting and then feeling like, like I hold all the badness, if you will, and holding that and something in that I think reintegrated her. Uh, and that's, symbol i i think that was expressed in the fact that when uh when max's wife asked her to stay away from him that she moved from sort of the sometimes when sixes get into like i'm i don't hold the power to a sense of responsibility where she claimed responsibility that felt like a very like an act of claiming her power again that was like evidence and uh, of this uh different stage of being if you will yeah 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 Yeah, issues of locus of control is very are very central to sixes right Uh, how much control do i have over this Uh, am i a victim or am i the one who's responsible uh, for for what happened and i think that clearly plays out with carla i mean her big concern was it's my fault my baby died and the the cleansing for her was to realize that there was nothing she could have done uh she felt kind of like a sixish character to me Right. Again, you know, I wouldn't, you know, bet the mortgage on that or anything. And I don't think that we could, you know, but uh, it felt sixish for me in the sense that the core issue she was struggling with was, do I have what it takes to survive? I mean, because for the remember, we first meet her when she can't get out of bed for three months. You know, she just wants to die. She says, "I, I, you know, I just can't I just can't do this. And this is the core fear at point six is I just can't do this, right? Life's too scary for me. It's too overwhelming. I don't have what it takes uh, to survive. Um, So big theme. And again, I think for, for me, what this movie highlights, again, it's not so much about depictions of Enneagram types, but it's depictions of phenomena, uh, intrapersonal phenomena that the Enneagram depicts in us, right? This issue of, um, number one, what does it mean to change and to grow, okay? And what is true growth, right? I mean, the the movie was based on a novel that was written by an author who survived a car crash and said, 
you know, noticed his own experiences of having survived a pretty significant car crash and then started studying survivors of trauma like that and what they go through. And what they found was that their experiences were very similar to what was depicted in the, in the film. I, I have this feeling of complete change, complete everything is different now. And then eventually they sort of normalize again. Okay. But if they're lucky, it's not quite the same sort of normal, right? It's kind of like the hero's journey, right? Where the hero goes out there to experience the world and realize, well, wait a minute, what I was looking for was always right here, but it's a little bit different than I thought it was. Okay. Um, so um, th- thoughts on that. I'll say one thing there that I thought was interesting was that, TJ, you were talking about this sort of sacrificial love of him trying to help her see that it's not her fault. You know, he's going to crash this car. He may or may not be thinking he's going to survive it or not. And after they survive, Carla goes to visit him at the rehab facility. And she basically not exactly breaks up with him, but sort of says like, I've come back to reality. You've helped me come back to reality. And now you need to come back to reality too. And, and if we stay together, continue this relationship, it's not going to help you come back. And then immediately the next scene is he goes home and he says to his wife, I want you to save me. So it's like he's saying, I just saved Carla. Now I'm realizing I need someone to save me in the same way because I'm not going to get out of this if you don't help me out of it. For me, um, that represents a recognition of the interdependence of love, right? That love is not just about sacrifice. It's not just about receiving selfishly. It's about the interdependence that we all experience and how we need to both receive love and to give love to be fully human. Um, Again, it also speaks to this idea of inherent worth versus earned, or I'll say inherent value versus uh, earned worth, okay? Core issue for three. Uh, The core quality of point three is that we are inherently valuable. We, We don't have to prove our value. We just are. But as we go out into the world and start to become socialized and we start to, you know, uh, kind of lose contact with that core quality, our value becomes dependent upon something else. Okay. And we're always wrestling with, well, so how can I recapture that feeling of value if it's determined by something else that's really, really arbitrary? Right. Uh, You you know, as they were talking about putting a value on the people, hey, if he if he suffered more, it would be worth more kind of thing. Right. If you could say, oh, oh, you tried to commit suicide. So that means we're going to get more money sort of thing. Right. Um, So it is what is genuine worth to really like uh, and how do we integrate that? Go ahead. Nian. Actually, so as you were sharing about interdependence, I just really touched. I mean, to hear you and both of the TJ share, it is striking how it's so this conversation is so beyond the movie itself. But like what touched you tell like is a window into you, you know, and like it like so I have this cherished all oh, interdependence of Mario being dependent to and I just <laughs> I'm just talking about a movie here in the end. I'm not talking about me. I'm just talking about a movie. Come on, man. (laughs) I'll be resharing this podcast with all of my, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but but it is true, right? Because like, that's what we're talking about. Like, what, what is touching to each of us? Like, I'm noticing what each of you notices and what you care about, and and that's the beautiful piece of that. And and it also, you know, and so and it does it. And and seeing it through your eyes, I was like, oh, it makes sense given that b background perspective. Why that would be extra special. You know, like given given Mario might have leaned toward more self reliance in his life, you know, like just guessing. Like I'm not. <laughs> so let's just make it deeply personal, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> for, for, yeah. Well, this is this is going to lead us to the conversation about whether it was the movie had been better if the character was an eight, one, four, or three. But uh, we'll, we'll we'll save that for a moment. So 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 go ahead, Nian. I interrupted. No, you. That's, right. I mean that's essentially it. Oh, but it did. One of the things when I couldn't figure out like the types of everyone in the movie, you know, um, that my next question was, wait, who wrote it? That's what I want to know. Because is it is it the fearless isn't the question from the protagonist, but it's almost like someone distant from the protagonist trying to live out their issues of fear through the protagonist. That's what I was trying to discern. It's like, what is this like a seven looking at a nine? It's like, you know, like, like those are the questions that were kind of behind the scenes happening for me here. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And those are is something we've talked about very often is how, because filmmaking is a collaborative process, you often have multiple influences on a character, right? And so it can be hard to tease out, okay, is this character a nine, but it's a seven director and you know and a five actor and you know all these sort of things so th those are relevant points so um for me the you know i, I kind of threw us a curveball on this i think I, I picked this movie and i picked this movie uh with nien in mind because i was intrigued in the with the themes and was intrigued in how she would um uh, come to this movie and uh, you you have not disappointed yet um so um and for me again it was almost uh, enneagram types were beside the point of this movie uh it's more about what the enneagram teaches us at a deeper level about fundamental human dynamics uh, which i think were very clear vividly on display in this film um so uh, before we get into our final uh you know kind of lighthearted question of would this movie have been better if any final thoughts on the movie it's just a quick one i know that you mentioned it in the very beginning it's the obvious theme of death and rebirth but i it did strike me that when it, and i'm so bad with names when max was in the car with carla i believe and they were driving together i don't know maybe to the mall at that point and he says, they're not like us, like the rest of these people, like they didn't die. That theme of, I mean, St. Paul, I die daily, the theme common in, in many of the world's uh, wisdom traditions around dying before you die, that, 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 that felt really important as a spiritual journey that, that this whole film represented for me to die symbolically before you die yeah yes it's it's the memento mori right it's the uh it's the acknowledgement of the possibility of death and the um and <laughs> not just the possibility but the the guarantee of death right and without this knowledge that we can die we really can't live 
Right. So, um, you know, the practice of the memento mori, as you say, uh, Nian, is in a lot of traditions. I keep a skull up on the shelf uh, across from my desk there um, for that very reason. It's this reminder of you will be dead soon, right? So focus, pay attention, live. Uh, and I think this is one of the themes. And in fact, he goes through this period of, you know, thinking he cannot die. Right when he walks across the Embarcadero, for example, with all the cars coming um, in in that scene, and he was you know eating the strawberries, and because he doesn't believe he can't die, he's not really alive. He thinks he is, right? But he has this coldness to him that you've commented on, and it's not until the end of the movie when he eats the strawberry and almost dies, comes within a whisper of dying, that he finally feels alive again. Right, uh, which was the interesting theme for yeah, me. Yeah, I ha- I had the thought that there's one of the very last shots is him standing in that fuselage with sort of the light, you know, and he's looking back like he's trying to decide: do I go on or do I come back? It's almost like metaphorically, the entire film takes place with him standing on that fuselage, in in that place, and he's he's looking at the light through most of the film. He's looking towards that light, but in he feels like he's alive, but he's not really alive the whole time. And it's not until the very end he comes back that he's he's alive again. Yeah, one of the Enneagram virtues, which is something I've heard Russ Hudson talk about more than once. For nine, the virtue is engagement, which is a different word than Oscar Chazo chose for the nine, which was action. And Russ's take on that was you can be active and disengaged. Many people are. You can You can be... A workaholic. You can be incredibly busy and doing all kinds of things and your head is somewhere else. And that actually describes not just nines, but a lot of us a lot of the time, which is why we do the work with the Enneagram is to break ourselves out of the perpetual sleepwalking that characterizes a lot of our waking lives. And particularly with nines, but it's relevant to all of us, is to really engage and just to build on what has been said, not this simulation of being engaged but to really be here and now with myself, with the other people in my life, and with the world, which is what, that was the conclusion of it. And the final shot is he's, he's fallen back. He's regained consciousness. He says, I'm alive. And he is, he's in that state where it's actually a little unclear whether he's laughing or crying. It looks a little bit more like laughing, but laughing and crying at that extreme degree look pretty similar. But what I got out of that was just an embrace of life. And I would imagine what's going to happen to that character afterwards is that he would commit himself to his marriage, to his family, uh, to, to his job, maybe even to helping out the kids of his deceased partner and not being this guy with his head in the clouds, but being the guy who is here and now for better or for worse. Yeah, just to jump in really quickly. So, so Mario, for those of you who don't know, Mario and I first met in person in Cairo, Egypt in January of this year. My presentation in Egypt was on death in the Enneagram and the whole idea, you know, as a minister, like I walk people into this like journey, right? Where some people are actually facing this like in a very, a live visceral way and um, one of my first slides is a slide where like yes this is the Enneagram describes nine versions of sleepwalking right you know I mean the nine takes it most seriously you know like in a way right makes it part of the persona but there's that aspect to that sleepwalking and the whole idea behind um, my presentation was that the confrontation 
Like that are very, there are many ways we, we talk about death euphemistically, et cetera, but like that's a very direct confrontation, um, of like our mortality is what brings us to life in a way. And so I could see that in this movie, both like in that literal sense, but also even seeing like if we do think, you know, Carla's a six, that what she had to die to was different. You know, that, the, the, that, that piece of like, if anything, it was like her powerlessness, like in, to, in, to, to kind of live into like the fullness of her wholeness and her quote engaged self was a different version. And I think that's where it's enneagrammatic, right? The, like what we need to die to that we may live into our fullness, if you will. Yeah. So, so great. Thanks, Nian. And um, um, so there are a couple of points I'll make here. So I talk about accelerators related to each of the uh, nine points, practices that help cultivate the core quality. Um, at point nine, it is generativity, right? This idea of giving to others, helping others to grow uh, without an expectation in return, right? And so this was clearly something that was on uh, Max's path. Uh, at point three, there's the identification of purpose, right? Why am I doing these things, right? What, what, it, what is it I'm trying to achieve in life to make the world better, to, to live my life? And at point six, it's finding evidence, right? So the, I, de I develop confidence by finding evidence of my capabilities. And clearly, this is something we saw in, in Carla, right? I mean, it was kind of a science experiment that Max conducted on her and I, you know, questionable way but if it worked so you know we'll give him a pass on that very very albert ellis uh tj and in, Gracia, you might want to ask your wife if uh, she saw the albert ellis influences in in in, in that uh piece um another thing um uh i think it was tj Dahl mentioned the crying laughing uh at the end um the the tibetan teacher Chogim Trungpa, who founded Naropa Institute, talked about the state of sorrow joy being the condition of life, right, where we experience both sorrow and joy at the same time. And true living is the ability to hold on to both of those things. So that he was, you know, crying, laughing, both, you know, one or the other was sort of fitting with that idea it seemed to me that's that's what came to mind as i watched that uh one final thing the um when she was looking at his work and it went from those drawings he did to the uh the 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 uh, the photo of the uh, art by uh, did you guys catch who the uh, artist was of that anonymous uh, bosch yes and uh any other famous piece of bosch's work come to mind here tj <laughs> Well, he's got the, uh, is it the Garden of Earthly Delights? And then that's that's the main one, I think. Yeah, he's, he seems like a pretty well-adjusted, normal kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, well, well, go to go to the Prado in, in Spain sometimes, in Madrid, and uh, see the, the Boscos, uh, as they call them there. Um, the guy had some things going on in his mind, but one of his most famous pieces was actually a depiction of the seven deadly sins. Uh, it's this piece, it's this circular piece on the table of the seven vices, anger, lust, gluttony, etc., which brings us all back to the Enneagram, because we all know the Enneagram is the seven deadly sins plus two. Um, so uh, it was a neat little tie in there, I thought, uh, when we saw the credit. So, um, okay, so final question. Uh, would this movie have been better if the lead character, 
the Jeff Bridges character was a three, a one, a four, or an eight. Uh, who wants to go first and focus on their Enneagram type? I don't think it would have been that much different. I think a four who'd gone through that experience, say, let's say it's a four who's an architect with a wife and a son, would probably grow similarly withdrawn from them. Uh, would probably be more likely to dis- disappear into creative work, which Max does. You know, he does a lot of drawings. Uh, so I can picture a four doing that, but also maybe wanting to create a masterpiece to capture the experience. You know, might want to change his career so now he's simply a painter or wants to create some building that represents his new vision of life. I can also picture the relationship between him and Carla leaning more into romantic feelings. I think unhealthy fours or just fours, average traumatized fours, like all kinds of fours who aren't doing so well, can be attracted to someone who's suffering for all the wrong reasons. We can be brokenhearted together. We can be broken together. And my wife who wasn't in this plane crash just doesn't understand the real me anymore. Nobody does, but you do because we've been through it together. And in fact, you've suffered even more than me because you lost a son. And it's interesting that the movie didn't go there at all. They even do kiss briefly, but it seems friendly. Yes. And I can imagine Hollywood studio executives wanting to have more of a romantic subplot, which there really wasn't. It wasn't about that. But I can picture with a four in that role probably would have been and not for the benefit of the film or the themes. TJ, if he was a one. Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. He, maybe he would have uh, had more survivor's guilt that he, uh, he survived and didn't perish with everyone else. Maybe he would have uh, led an investigation into the issues of the crash and <laughs> make sure this never happens again. Um, maybe he would have had... Uh, it, it was interesting. The que- I was thinking about how, well, how would I react if I was put in this position of potentially having to lie or stretch the truth around the nature of my partner's death to benefit his widow and their children. And, um, you know, I like to tell the truth as much as possible, but you also want to help these people. And so maybe there'd be more, uh, there'd be more agonizing over that, over that question than he's got, but probably wouldn't have worked so well if he was a one. (laughs) Yeah. And if he was a three, any thoughts? (laughs) Well, what's funny is we were talking earlier that it's hard to actually pick his Enneagram type, but we could probably eliminate three for his complete lack of interest in, in, you know, being the hero, if you will, you know, interesting, you know, that, that he didn't play off of that at all. But I I feel like the the way it might've gone a little differently is I imagine if that had happened and the person was a three um, and they're, they're in the limelight, you know, that the healing thing at the end would have been something along the lines of the wife being like, like we loved you before that before that, you know, and that that was like like coming home to self to understand like you didn't need to create that significance or like, you know, even the specialness of all the lights and the, you know, like, like all that. And so this healing of just landing in like, like the isness of being. Yeah. So landing, that's an ironic uh, term to use. (laughs) (laughs) Nice sketch. (laughs) So yeah, that's great. It's a good insight. And in fact, uh, this is one of the things I thought of with the character, particularly when he came out of his house and all the reporters were there and they're calling him a hero and the good Samaritan. And what does he do? He Sneaks runs away. Out, yeah, right. He, yeah. you know, he, he uh, and, uh, so for me, that kind of self deprecation was, uh, again, kind of a nine ish trait. Um, so, uh, if the character was an eight, there would have been a whole lot of look, just suck it up. Okay. You survived the crash, quit your wine and get back to work sort of thing. So, uh, you know, 
<laughs> so, all right, good. So, um, uh, so guys, gr- great episode and uh, a real interesting conversation. Yen, I want to thank you for being with us. I know that, uh, again, you're not a huge movie person, uh, and I appreciate you sitting through this movie not just once but twice uh, in, in order to be sufficiently prepared. And uh, I knew you would uh, make some uh, really great contributions to the conversation, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, I just want to remind people that, uh, uh, you know, you can reach Nian Yen. Would uh, you have a website or something where people can reach you? Yes, evolvingenneagram.com is my All website. Right. Thanks, Mary. All right, great. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, uh, Nian caught my attention because when I was listening to her on this panel of the Enneagram and Spirituality, I thought she was very thoughtful um, and uh, insightful and rather than just parroting, um, you know, things she had heard and or read in Enneagram books, uh, uh, she I was impressed with her ability to actually think through things and come up with interesting insights. Uh, uh, again, we tend to uh, downplay spirituality in our work with the Enneagram for, you know, not because we have anything against it, um, but um, if you are interested in, uh, you know, kind of a more spiritual approach to the Enneagram, I highly recommend Nien's work. So um, thank you, thank you Nien. Um, so I guess with that, folks, uh, we come to the end of another episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. TJ, TJ, thank you again as always. Um, and Yen, it was great to have you with us. Thank you. So great to be here. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 